Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now Mount of Olives is actually higher than Jerusalem. And when I took a tour, uh, the two times I've been to Israel, we've done our group picture at the Mount of Olives because it's a little bit higher. And you can see the Dome of the Rock. You can see the Eastern Wall. You can see um, the Kidron Valley there. It's, it's, that's what he's coming up to. So he's come from Bethany. He's coming up. He's, he's risen from almost sea level in Jericho, which was last week, to now about 2,500 feet above sea level. So he's working his way up. He's coming in to his final days. He sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. Now this is of significance because royalty and objects used for sacred purposes, religious purposes, and royalty would always be an object that had never been used before. So he's picking a donkey that had never been used before. And when I was studying this, I know this isn't really the point, but I just want to bring it up to all the young women, you that are in high school and middle school, here tonight. You have been given a sacred body. You young men in middle school and high school, you've been given a sacred body, a physical body. That God is designed for sacred and beautiful purposes. And our vision for you, and of course, there's always a restart if this hasn't happened, but our vision for you would be that you would come into that holy matrimony. We call it holy matrimony. That you would come into holy matrimony having waited and saved yourself for your husband or for your wife. There's something sacred about that. There's something sacred about the fact that they came to a cult that had never been ridden before. It was for the king. It's for Jesus. He would be the first one to ride that cult. And sex is like that. Sex is a beautiful thing. And it's sacred before the Lord. And in holy matrimony, that's what it's meant for. So I want to encourage you to... To watch over that area. To trust God with that area. And wait. And save it as that sacred time that you would be with your husband or wife when you get married. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. Verse 4. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street. And they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosening the colt. Now, isn't it amazing when we, re- we study the scriptures how detailed it is? I mean, it's amazing to me the detail we have in scripture with the life of Christ, both Mark. Luke's more detailed than Mark, but Mark here is extraordinarily detailed. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This was customary 
for subjects to do in homage to a king. You recall when Elisha, when Elisha anointed Jehu king. See, when God anointed Jehu king to take back the kingship and the authority from Ahab and his evil wife and, and his evil kingdom, they, the, the people came out with robes and they laid them down on the steps and Jehu walked across that. That's in 1 Kings 9. Verse 9, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they're, and they're conjuring up Psalm 118. Psalm 118 it speaks of Hosanna to the Lord. And the, and the word Hosanna means save now. Save, they're screaming out, save now. Save now, proclaiming to the king. When we, next week, the timing of this is amazing. Next week, when, you, when we go into that baptismal, we should, we should say Hosanna. Save now. Now, does baptism save you? No, baptism doesn't save you. But it's an outward, physical, public proclamation of a private decision, an inward decision you've made to be a Jesus follower, we could, with all legitimacy, shout out, save now, Hosanna, he comes. And for some of you, there's going to be such a significant work of God in your baptism that it's going to be like you got saved again. You see, I explain in our treatise on baptism that I believe that in some circles, some of you that come out of maybe more of a, what I call a Baptistic background would, would see baptism as symbolic only. But I come out of a Lutheran background and I see that baptism is not only symbolic, it's also sacred from the perspective of there is actually a means of grace that occurs in baptism. There is a release of grace into the one who's receiving baptism, listen, with spiritual power on it. Rightly administered. Rightly administered. I mean, you can't take a hose and just start hosing down the neighborhood and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, but rather that the baptism is a, is a covenant between you and God with a decision that you've made to follow Christ and there is spiritual power in it, church. I mean, it's also symbolic of the death of Christ and the life of Christ as we come in and out of the water. But there's power in that. And so people are proclaiming, believing Jesus to be the king. But we're going to learn next week and the next week as each day passes that their understanding of what the king, the Messiah would be like, and who Jesus has come to be and to do, there's confusion. There's confusion about that. Even among the disciples, they don't understand his purpose. I had the privilege on Sunday to be at another church here in town, and they asked me to speak on Revelation. I love teaching Revelation. It might be the next book we go into. I've been praying about that. But... Um, the thing that hit me as I was preparing that message is how the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, depict a king in humility. But Revelation of all the books of the Bible presents a king in victory. And so Revelation was written to the people of God to see a king who's going to come 
in his victorious reign. That's what happens at baptism. Baptism is us saying that we're coming and we're proclaiming publicly for everyone to see in the body of Christ. I want Jesus to be king in my life. I want Jesus to rule in my life. And it is, it is proclaiming it to the body of Christ. And so all of Jerusalem comes out. And it's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. And Zechariah 9.9, the prophetic word is, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus comes in Zechariah 9.9, prophetic fulfillment. Verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. I like this part. It's almost like he's a special ops guy. And he's like spying out what he's going to do the next day. He goes into Jerusalem, into the temple. So when he had looked around at all the things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So you know what he's about to do. He comes in. He's looking for something. He checks things out. He leaves. Now the next day, so this is Monday of the final week, Monday. When they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, it's important to understand the uniqueness of fig trees. Fig trees produce fruit before they produce leaves. Orange trees don't do that. Apple trees don't do that. Apricot trees don't do that. But fig trees do. And we used to have a fig tree in my aunt and uncle's house at my grandfather's ranch. And so we would always go, you could just smell figs like all the time. Always, it always, and it's in South Carolina, so it's warm there. But it seemed like it was always producing figs. So he comes and it's the opposite. He sees leaves but no fruit. And he's, he's used to seeing a, a fig tree, if it has leaves, it should have fruit because the fruit came before the leaves. And the picture here is not of a fig tree. The picture is the nation of Israel. He's prophetically speaking of the nation of Israel. Israel has the leaves but it doesn't have the fruit. Men and women, we can say that of many churches. They have the leaves, they have the vestiges, they have the outward appearance of being a church, but where's the fruit? Many believers are this way, right? We've all been this way in our lives. We have the leaves, but we don't have the fruit. And so he looks at it, he says, you've got, you know, Jesus could have said at that point, that you have the word, you have the laws of Moses. You have the miracles found in the Torah. And yet there's no fruit. You, you take your people here, but then the Messiah is in your midst and you're actually rejecting his grace call and his love call to the people. And you've got, you've got, the, you've got the word and you've got the promises and you've got the commands. But you don't have the fruit. And your legalism... And your lack of heart for the heart of God is killing you. So Jesus is starting to get a little bit angry here. 
I like a, a uh, blog I read recently. Is Jesus more like Mother Teresa or William Wallace? And you guys have seen my blog where I said I've compared kind of Jesus. We like to see Jesus almost like a Mr. Rogers with a beard. Well, we're going to see a little more of William Wallace in the next few minutes. It says it's a lone fig tree. Men and women, if you've ever been around fruit trees, you know that the only way that a fruit tree can produce fruit is with cross-pollination. So we, we have an apple tree in our backyard, and I've planted two other apple trees. We have an apricot tree, and I've planted two other apricot trees. Because if you get cross-pollination, then they'll produce fruit. I think that's a metaphor for the Christian life. That God doesn't want us to live the Christian life alone. You can't cross-pollinate. You can't bear fruit without others in your life. And at the road, that's why we have C groups, and that's why we have D groups. And it's so important that you're cross-pollinating. I came in this morning, excuse me, I came in this evening, and, I, and in there, in the lobby, were all these prayer groups. There's these prayer groups going on. And I thought, that's so cool. And there's these ladies at one table, and they were holding hands, and they were praying for something. And then I walked through the door, and the men that come here to pray at 515 were over here praying. Cross-pollination. Cross-pollination. If you're a loner... In your Christian life, it's going to be difficult to grow. It's going to be difficult to grow. You'll have the leaves, but you won't have the fruit. Don't you want the fruit? Life's hard enough. Why do it alone when you don't have to? Verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. This is no Mr. Rogers with a beard. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. So Jesus comes up and he is torqued off. And he's, 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 he's looking at what has happened to the court of the Gentiles. So he's coming into the court of the Gentiles. As he comes into the court of the Gentiles, Malachi 3 says this. Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of of Levi. Jesus comes with the dishonest gain that was happening in the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court of the temple. Much evidence that there was a kickback to all of the priests during that time. So they were allowed to have their wares, they were allowed to have their booths. And then the kickback came to the priest, and Jesus comes in and he sees this area. Listen. This area was designated for those that were non-Jews to come and worship. It was a place for those who were not Jews who couldn't enter in to the holy place to come. And they could worship there. And there were many, many Gentiles who had come there. But now it's packed. 
It's packed with Jews and probably Gentiles too that are selling, making money, um, merchandise in an economy that was a temple economy that had begun to grow at that time and, and you couldn't get in there. Historians believe it was impossible to even get in there unless you were selling stuff. You weren't even allowed in at a point later on in the temple worship unless you did have something to sell. So you're selling sometimes pigeons and you're sometimes selling sheep to those that are going in to do sacrifices. And the Gentiles couldn't get there. And so what Jesus is about to say is significant for the location in which this happened. Verse 17, look what he says. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. So Jesus is proclaiming his kingship. Jesus is proclaiming his messiahship. Even over the finances of the temple and the commercial purposes that he gained access into all parts of the temple But he's saying, this is what this was created for, not for commercial purposes, but rather to be a place of prayer for the nations where the nations can come and where we can lift up entreaties for the nations. And church, this is what what the church is called to, to be a house of prayer for the nations. So starting next week, we've got a new addition that we're putting into our service. And we're going to begin each service praying for a nation. And so next week, I've asked uh, George Stanky to lead us in prayer before we do the reading uh, for Israel. And we're going to lift up the nation of Israel. And speaking of Israel, did, how many of you watched or have watched since then the Benjamin Netanyahu speech? I really encourage you to YouTube that and watch that. It's a very, very important speech in our day. So the court of the Gentiles had become commercial. And it wasn't a house of prayer. And the church can become commercial and not be a house of prayer. Church, I have such a vision, we have such a vision here of of a ranch someday, maybe out east, where we could make it a, a place of prayer where you could go 24-7 for prayer. A place that we would, we would have out there, have access for worship and prayer constantly going on. Things are happening in our world right now that I want to encourage you, church, be in prayer. ISIS is on the move. Iran is on the move. Russia is on the move. It's getting dangerous out there. There's, I watched an interview with a Jordanian president with uh, CNN last week, and he spoke of a coming World War III, the beginnings of a coming World War III. We must be a house of prayer because I don't want to get too far off here, but I, I do believe that because of the sin. And in morality of our nation, we will have war. The protection of the Lord is lifting over our nation. Prepare for war. Prepare for war even in your own home. They're coming after your kids. 
Almost every day the last two weeks I've either been on the phone with, texted with, or did counsel with parents with young people that have not only gone astray but are in deep, deep trouble. It's happening all over the place. Satan wants the blood of your kids. He's already got over 50 million through abortion. And now he's going after those who were not aborted. And he's going to take those kids and he will steal, kill, and destroy. So church, we've got to learn to fight in prayer. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. People in power kill what they fear. People in power kill what they fear. And the temple system was being attacked. The temple system, the, the systems of power were under attack by Christ. And they're going to destroy Christ. Verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, and this is crucial, guys. Listen to what he says. And this, is the, this is the essence of what I want to communicate tonight. Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. The incredible power of believing prayer. The incredible power of believing prayer. This is not only the lesson of the fig tree church. This is the lesson of the latter days. This is the lesson of the latter days church. This is the lesson to the latter days saints and worshipers and warriors. Men, this is a lesson to you. God has called you to be men of believing prayer. Women, this is a lesson. This is a word to you to be women of God who will trust God, who will get on your knees for your family, who will pray for your husband, who will believe that God can move any mountain out of your way. In the latter days, there's going to be this great empowering. I see it. It's happening now. There's a great empowering coming, and the church is going to be the most powerful army on the face of the earth through prayer. To be a house of prayer. So he says, look, the church is to be a house of prayer. And now he's telling us how to do it. This is what a house of prayer looks like. A house of prayer is the corporate body, but the house of prayer is every one of us in this room. You are a house of prayer. You are a house of prayer. Men and women, you are a house of prayer. And what God can do through houses of prayer. Here's what he says. I see four lessons of faith in prayer here. Four, four points that Jesus makes about prayer. Number one, this is really important. Don't miss this. The object of our faith is God. He says, have faith in God. The object of believing prayer 
is God, not faith. You don't have faith in faith. You have faith in God. So some of, some of the teaching out there, a little bit more of that word faith teaching, almost seems to, seems to lend itself to having faith in faith. It's not what he's saying. He says, first of all, have faith in God. You're putting your faith in God, not in your faith. Anybody here have some ebbs and flows in their faith? Anybody here struggle with your faith sometimes? Hello. But my faith is not in my faith. And my faith is not in your faith. And your faith is not in my faith. Our faith is in God. Creator of the heavens and the earth. You look at your marriage. You look at your situation. You look at your addictions. And you're down and you're bummed. And you're thinking, how in the world am I ever going to get out of this? Don't think about your situation. Put your faith in God. You say, well, I'm new to the Lord. I don't know much about the things of the Lord. I'm just starting to do PB and J. And I'm just learning. I just started to eat that candy bar. And, And I'm just learning. Have faith in God. Not your faith. Not your experience. Not what you can or can't do. Put your faith in God. Church, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Second thing he says... He says, have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. So secondly, focus your prayer on the power of God to remove that mountain in your life. Let me say it again. Focus your prayer... On the power of God to remove that mountain in your life. Not how much faith you have. Not how good you are. Not how faithful you've been. But focus in on the problem. Focus in on the mountain. Does anybody have any mountains? It It might be sitting right next to you. You know, at any point it will be sitting next to you we all have marriage problems boyfriend problems girlfriend problems if you're hopefully i'm speaking to those that are single um but (laughs) and some of you have that problem too focus your heart On the power of God to remove mountains, not just the mountain. If you just focus on the mountain and pray about the mountain, you'll be just thinking about the mountain. I've learned that doesn't do any good. I prayed about it and nothing happened. No, focus on the power of God to remove the mountain, not just the mountain. It changes literally everything. I, I had this on Wednesday. Wednesday night, I couldn't sleep. And there were several things that were mountains. And all I could do, you think, man, I, he's going to give us a really good example. I'm going to tell you how not to do it. Okay? So on Wednesday night, all I thought about was the mountain all night, and I didn't sleep. And then I'm studying this. I'd studied it on Tuesday. I'd written some notes, and I just realized, you know, I'm, I didn't do the very thing that I wrote here. I was focusing on the mountain instead of focusing on the power of God to remove that mountain. 
Don't miss this, guys. This is important. Focus on the power of God to remove that mountain. And he will. And he can. And he's looking for men and women who trust him. Now, here's number three. Here's number three. This is the hard one. I hate this part. Speak to it. Speak to it. That's what he tells us. So I, I was sharing... I was sharing in a church last week on Sunday, and I was speaking on speaking to something. So I said, speak to that demon and tell it to go. And I had a gentleman challenge me on that during the Q&A time. I did a Q&A time about that. And so we were suddenly speaking to each other about speaking to it. And it was an interesting dialogue. So I came away going, okay, is this really that important? And the next day I open up this passage. And he says here that we're supposed to speak. He says, whoever says to the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. Speak to it. That's how salvation comes, church. Right? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. With the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now I don't have time, but I've done whole sermons on this, on the importance of when you speak stuff, the correlation they found in the brain with what you believe. That there, there is something that happens when you speak it that communicates to your brain that you actually believe it. So, if, so from this day forward, men, if you got a wife that's walking around the house speaking to stuff to leave, they've got permission to do that. And wives, if your husband starts walking around and he's speaking stuff, just make sure you don't say it to your boss. I mean, say it in the quiet of your own prayers, okay? But he's saying, speak to the mountain and tell it to be removed. Vision... Always happens twice. Vision always happens twice. The vision you see in your mind's eye, in your heart, and then when you speak it are, are two, two versions of the same vision. But until we speak it, it's not a vision. Until you speak it, it's not going to happen. As he says, speak to it. The writer of Hebrews says, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Proverbs says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. That seems to be, even physiologically and psychologically, faith kicks in when you say it, when you speak it. Men, women, to say that you love your wife, to say that you love your husband, releases love into the atmosphere of your home. When you, as a coach, some of you are coaches, and you've got your kids there, and you're getting ready to go into the ball game, you're getting ready to go into whatever it is you compete in, in that sport, and you tell those young boys and girls, they can do it. When you say to your son or your daughter that I see in you greatness. I see in you beauty. Something's released into their heart. Faith is released into their heart by speaking it. 
But then he has this caveat that none of us like. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So first, the object of our faith is always God. Two, focus your prayer on the power of God to remove obstacles in your life. Three, speak it. Fourthly, forgive. Forgive those who've wronged you from your heart. Because your prayers will be hindered if you don't forgive. Jesus said, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, forgiveness and trust are two different things. Hello? Forgiveness and trust are two different things. You can forgive someone, you don't have to trust them. You can forgive them and be released of any of that animosity that you carried through the power of God, but you don't have to have a friendship with them. You don't have to trust them. Because, see, forgiveness is between you and God and you're commanded to forgive. Trust is earned. So you can't determine just by forgiving someone that they're going to change. When we're forgiving, we're releasing the power of that sin off of our heart. We're being released from that. We're being forgiven. We're receiving Christ's forgiveness. But the person who has maybe created the offense that you are um, forgiving may never change. And I think there's confusion sometimes in the body of Christ. Well, I've forgiven them, and so we're going to have this relationship again that doesn't always work that way. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you in forgiving someone who's continually hurt you to forgive them and continue to forgive them. Seven times 70. 490 times forgive them. But you don't necessarily have to trust them. So make sure you understand the distinction. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Wow. I, I really dig Jesus when he deals with Pharisees. He's like, he's my man. Wow. Not very nice, is he? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, well, if we say uh, from heaven, then he's going to say, why then did you not believe him? But then if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. Wimps. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the reality is, church, that sometimes answering a question with a question is really wise. You do not have to answer the questions of the foxes of your life that are trying to tie you up in a world of um, mental gymnastics 
to catch you in a phrase or to catch you in a word so that you can be stomped on. Use wisdom. Use wisdom. Be innocent as a dove. Be wise as a serpent. You can be wise as a serpent. Jesus is. Jesus is. So tonight, what's happening in your prayer life? What's God saying? Are there some mountains that you need to give to the Lord? Are there some obstacles that have been created through um, hurt or pain or confusion? I want to encourage you to give those to the Lord tonight. Ask God to empower you with his word and his spirit to begin to believe not how massive the mountain is, but rather to look at that mountain and look at how massive the power of God is to remove that mountain in your life. Amen? Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11? Let me close here. Worship team can come up. We're going to take communion tonight. And in 1 Corinthians 11... Verse 23, we see Jesus at the Last Supper speaking about the Lord's table. Or some some of you may come out of a background where it's called the, the Eucharist. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I want to walk down here. And this, now you have gluten-free uh, body too. So you got a gluten-free body and a gluten-full body. But I'm going to pick up the gluten-full. Okay. This is unleavened bread. Probably the bread, very similar to what Jesus took that night when he was betrayed. And that, that night is last. This is last meal with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And I think it's appropriate that we're here tonight because um, this is the other covenant, the other means of grace that I believe in in the road. And that is, first of all, baptism, but then second of all, the Lord's table. So I believe there's a means of grace. If you come and you take communion with the proper heart and the proper spirit, there is actually going to be an impartation of grace into your spirit and into your heart when you take communion. And then he took the cup, said, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. If you're a Jesus follower, if you're a disciple of Christ, you're welcome to come to the table. We have a thing at the road called the covenant of harmony. The covenant of harmony is a covenant that we make with each other that if we have issues and we have struggles going on in a relationship, that we try to work it out. We follow Matthew chapter 6. We follow Matthew chapter 18. And I can excitingly say that over these first eight months as a church that there have been dozens of situations where you guys have come together and said, you know, it hurt me when this happened and can we work this out? And, and there's been covenants of harmony happening all through the body. 
Well, communion is like that. Communion is sort of like a covenant of harmony with the church and with the body of Christ. And so here's what I would say. If tonight you've got issues with someone here, don't come take communion. Get that right. And if you want to go and make it right tonight, you can. If you want to do it another time, you can. But this is really uh, about the unity of the body of Christ. And when we come together, we're saying that it's to, the, to the best of my knowledge and to the best of my heart motivations, I'm right with all men. I'm a Jesus follower. And so I'm entering into the reconciliation of what Christ did at Calvary for me. Does that make sense? But that's what it's all about. So why don't we stand? And as the worship team begins to lead out in worship, you're welcome to come up here and take communion. And what we do at the road is we invite you to come up and then maybe as a family or with others, and you can certainly do it as an individual too, come and just take the elements and take it just by yourself over at different parts of the church. You can go back to your seat, whatever you're comfortable with. So, Father, as we go into worship right now, we invite your presence over the bread, over the body, over the juice, over the blood. Lord, bless it. This is a sacrament of yours, Lord. And so we ask you to come and, Lord, release greater grace into our hearts as we take the Lord's Supper. In your name we pray. Amen.